Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Actively Speaking. I'm Steve Blyberg, and my guest today is somebody that I'm hoping will be a frequent guest on the show, uh, Kevin Hebner, who is Epic's Global Investment Strategist. Kevin and I have actually known each other for over 20 years. We've worked together at three different firms. He is the author of several very good white papers on our website, www.eipny.com. And we're going to talk about the most recent one of those today. Just prior to joining Epic, uh, Kevin was a foreign exchange strategist at JP Morgan. Before that, he was a strategist at Third Wave Global Investors. And prior to that, he was at the firms that where we work together, including Citigroup Asset Management and Credit Suisse Asset Management. And we first met uh, when I was managing Japanese equities at Credit Suisse, and you were a Japanese uh, market strategist at Warburg Dillon Reed back in the mid 1990s. Kevin spent time working at the Bank of Japan, too. The white paper we're going to talk about today is your most recent one. It's called Blitz Scale and Hope Unicorns, IPOs, and the Fear of Repeating the Late 1990s. So, why don't you start by telling us what that title means Blitz Scale and Hope? So blitz scale, the, the scale part of, of the term refers to digital platforms in which network effects are very important. So gaining scale, becoming big uh, very quickly is important. The, the expression blitz scaling has been popularized by Reid Hoffman, who is co-founder of PayPal, LinkedIn, among other firms. He's an active venture capital investment, teaches um, a course on this subject at Stanford. And just to give an example, the um, subtitle of his book is The Lightning Fast Path to Building Massively Valuable Companies. <laughs> uh, that's actually how Reid Hoffman talks. <laughs> um, but what we mean by blitz scale. Um, the hope part is a lot of these companies, the unicorns which are going public, um, um, they've been in business for a while. Uh, the vast majority of them have yet to produce profits. So the hope part is that investors are hoping eventually um, they will be producing sustainable cash flow. Right. So that's right there. There's an interesting distinction between what happened in the late 1990s. So because that, so your subtitle, you mentioned the fear of repeating the late 1990s. And mm -hmm. it's perhaps shocking for us to realize that there are plenty of people in this business who were not in this business in the late 1990s. That was 20 years ago now. You know, we remember well the things like Pets.com is the most notorious one with the, the TV commercial with the sock puppet. Uh, these companies that came along, went public often very quickly, didn't have any, weren't making profit like you say, like some of the companies today. Uh, but uh, what's interesting to me, one thing I was, we had talked about what we were going to talk about today uh, before this podcast. And after that conversation, it occurred to me that one of the differences, and we'll get to similarities and differences, you know, 20 years ago, People openly mocked the idea that you actually needed to make profit. Mm. You know, there was that there was all that stuff about the new economy, and if you pointed out that, well, you know, it's still capitalism, you're putting capital at risk. People who are putting it up expect to make money. Otherwise, why would they put money into the company? And you were uh, just mocked as being hopelessly out of date for having that view. And there was uh, it was all about eyeballs, et cetera. So at least today, people seem to acknowledge that. Do you, do you, would you say that's a big uh, difference versus 20 years ago? People acknowledge that you have to make money. Yes, you can obviously have an IPO in which you're not making money, but people are very much focused on the pathway to profitability. And there has to be some transparency about that. 
Overall, IPOs this year have done very well in the market. Two exceptions have been Uber and Lyft. And, and those are cases in which there are many questions about this pathway to profitability. Will that happen? And I think there's a lot of quite sensible debate as to whether they have unique business models that are sustainable, if they have digital moats, and if they will, in fact, ever be cash flow positive. Right. Okay. So let's, let's talk about what are some of the differences between 20 years ago and today or, or some mitigating factors that, that might uh, make some of those things you just talked about a little less concerning? There, there are quite a few differences, and, and I think that's why overall we're less concerned than we, we would have been, um, and certainly given the characteristics 20 years ago. One of the differences you mentioned earlier, during the dot-com boom, the median age of companies going public was four years. Uh, companies like eToys, Webvan, Pets.com, in some cases were only created, founded a year before their IPO, and in some instances, a year later went bankrupt. With the current crop of IPOs, the median age is 12 years. So they're about three times older than they were 20 years ago. Similar with sales, during the, the tech bubble, some of the companies had just been founded, were just developing their business models, had very small sales. Uh, the current crop, they've been in business longer. They've developed a reasonably robust business model. Revenues are about three times higher and revenue growth in most cases is quite strong. So I think that's one important difference. Uh, a second difference is that when we think about IPOs uh, relative to the market, and this is important if we're concerned about liquidity issues, the market is much bigger than it was 20 years ago. So even if in nominal terms, the value of IPOs this year is greater than 1999, in fact, the value of IPOs expressed as a percentage of market cap is below its 20-year mean. So we don't really think it's putting a lot of pressure on market liquidity. Uh, you had a chart in the white paper that I found really interesting, uh, one of many that I found interesting, <laughs> um, which it was something I really didn't know, is that this mix of uh, the biotech IPOs, which basically, I think you said none of which are profitable, but they make up a much bigger percentage today than they did 20 years ago, and yes. that's affecting these numbers, these aggregate numbers for profitability. Yes. The, the biotech industry is very important. And as I think uh, many of our listeners ever know, this is an industry with developments in genetics and so forth is booming. Most biotech companies, not only do they not have profits, they don't even have revenues. They don't have any sales. The products are under development, the research companies. Uh, many of these companies probably will not have revenues and profits ever. But the view is that if some of them do come up with treatments and drugs that are successful, that they will do extremely well. But that is a very big difference from 20 years ago. Okay, you also talk about um, some other differences that maybe aren't so positive, uh, such as the number of companies that are going public with dual share classes that enable insiders to still maintain control of the company. Yes, I think that's, that's a big concern. For most of the, the modern history of the US equity market, the New York Stock Exchange has not allowed dual class share issuance by firms. Um, this has been relaxed over recent decades, and particularly since the Google IPO in 2004, this tendency has really accelerated. Currently, about 35% of tech IPOs have dual class shares post Google. Recently, we've even had some issuances in which the shares have zero voting rights overall. This has become quite controversial, for example, with with Facebook during the, the, um, the June meetings, 
a large majority of shareholders wanted to separate the roles of CEO and chairman. And, and broadly in corporate governance, this is considered best practice to have a separation of roles. Um, the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, controls the majority of voting rights in Facebook, so he effectively has control. And th this has become a, a big issue as, as in many instances or many senses, Facebook's become the, the poster child for corporate governance challenges in the tech sector and in America. Right, yeah, these, these, all these points raise you know, a couple of other questions like, what does it mean to be, are you truly a public company if, if one or two people still control everything, even though there are shares that can trade, there's a market, I guess you know, what, the, what we mean by quote public is, you can trade the shares easily in a market, doesn't necessarily mean you have the ability to actually, actually exercise much control over the company. So it's sort of a weird hybrid state. Yes, it's a strange thing if you have a company like Facebook, which is cash flow generative, we don't think it's likely to go, need to go to markets to, to raise cash, and then one person controls the majority of the shares. Why does the company need to be public? And in what sense is it public um, in the view that shareholders have some type of ability to influence the company, some type of degree of control? So right. it is a strange hybrid. Yeah, and then, and then the other thing that springs to mind is you know, you talked about the level of uh, VC involvement these days in, the, in all these companies that are going public. And it, it raises this question, why do companies go public? You know, if you go back to 20 years ago when they were going public in a very young age, it was because they needed the capital, you know, even if they were spending it stupidly, like on a, one commercial for the Super Bowl, which I, as I recall, one company did. That's why they went public to raise money to buy a Super Bowl commercial. So even if they didn't spend it wisely, the point is they needed the capital. But nowadays you've got these companies that have as you point out, they've been around, they're 12 years old, they've got plenty of revenue, they've got venture capital backing. Why go public? Well, I think for the 85% of tech companies that are not profitable, they will need cash, particularly as they need to blitz scale. Additionally, they've gone through a couple VC rounds and there are a lot of investors that do want to cash out. They specialize in analyzing new and upcoming companies, and they don't want to necessarily be investing in companies that have been around for 10 years plus and, and are maturing. So I, I think for the VC industry to get out, and, th and that's quite similar to, to PE. PE investors will often have a 10-year horizon. We want to be working with this company, making some operational changes, but at some point we do want to be cashing out. So I think it is a way for VC investors to cash out so that they can go back and look at new upcoming firms. Right, and of course when you say PE, you mean private equity, not PE price to earnings ratios. Yes. Um, but that, you know, that brings up a point uh, that I made in the, the recent white paper from last year about the limits of theory, about some, one of the flaws in the modern portfolio theory conclusion that you should buy everything that's public, is that sometimes uh, when a company goes public, maybe that's not the best time to be buying it if, as you say, it's really just because the, the VC investors are looking for a liquidity event to get their money out, that's not necessarily proof that it's it's a good business right now and that you should want to own it. You know, and the conclusion of that paper was you should not surrender that judgment as to whether a business is a good business and, and simply buy everything that's that's part of the market. I suppose we should be grateful that these companies are going public though, because and going back to another one of your earlier points about the the ratio of the value of the companies going public today in terms of the market cap relative to the overall market. You pointed out that that's lower than it was 20 years ago, which is kind of remarkable because the number of publicly traded companies is actually down quite a bit in the last 
20 years because we did go through a period where there was not a lot of IPO activity, but there was still a lot of mergers and acquisitions activity. And so the number of publicly traded companies actually was shrinking. And so I guess we should be grateful that at least they're, they're adding to the, uh, to the supply of publicly traded companies. And that really has implications for active managers like us, uh, I would, don't you think? I, I think it has a number of implications. If you think that a liberal capitalist democracy is a good idea, then presumably public equity markets are important. You want to have vibrant public equity markets. And the fact that the number of companies in public markets in the US has declined precipitously over the last 20 years, this is a concern. So you'd think that we want to encourage new companies, emerging companies, unicorns and others to be joining public markets. I think this is, this is an important thing for society broadly. In terms of what it means for active managers, there has been a concern over the last decade when so much of market movements have been driven by QE that we have one factor driving all prices and there's very little dispersion across securities. In fact, when you look at IPOs, there's enormous, and, and pre-IPO uh, VC returns, there's enormous dispersion across countries. Uh, in fact, VC investors lose money on over 50% of their investments, but once they, they go public, the average uh, IPO has a first day return of about 14%, and then afterwards, some lose a lot of money, many go bankrupt, others have returns over the next, say, a two to three year holding period, greater than 100%. So there is enormous dispersion among post-IPO companies than you'd get among more, more mature companies. And one would think that active managers could go in, do their analysis using criteria such as ability to produce free cash flow on a sustainable basis, ability to allocate capital appropriate, and their policies towards returning capital to shareholders that using these sorts of criteria, that they would be able to distinguish the wheat from the chaff and should be able to outperform on the basis. So I would think this should be something that's um, very positive for the active management business. Okay, let's talk about something that's in the news right now. Uh, so we're recording this on July 25th. And earlier this week, there was an announcement that the Justice Department uh, is, is initiating uh, some antitrust investigations into some of these very large uh, tech companies. Uh, I think they named Google and Apple and um, a couple of others. Does that uh, call into question the, the validity of this whole, quote, blitz scaling strategy? Because the criticism of the tech industry in recent years has been that, you know, where are the antitrust enforcers? Why, why you've got these people with these huge market shares and no significant competition and, and why hasn't there been more action? And we hear people, some politicians calling to, quote, break up companies like Facebook. Um, or Google. And the response by some people has been to say, well, where's the harm to consumers? It's not like, you know, Google is free, that kind of thing. It's not like they're using, they're taking advantage of that monopoly position to raise prices. Although, of course, the question of what is the price of some of these things has never been fully thought out by many people. Uh, you know, they don't realize that the data, it's your data that they want, and that's how they're making money. And, and uh, that's why it's, quote, free, but it's not really free. You're giving them something of value, uh, at least to something that is valuable to them. Antitrust people are not just interested in harm to consumers. They're also interested in other things like pricing in terms of uh, if, if prices are stable or falling, that doesn't mean that, that there's no antitrust issue, that there can be uh, other issues. So the question is, if, if we're moving back into a world where there's more vigorous antitrust or different interpretations of antitrust, 
when it comes to these large, quote, blitz-scaling companies. What's that going to mean uh, for strategy of these, of these companies? Are they going to still be able to do this and go public? Yeah, the, the DOJ announcement two days ago was very important. They are going to be reviewing um, some of the large companies, the digital tech companies, to see if there are behaviors that are anti-competitive in particular. It's clear that this is going to take a very long time. And historically, these sorts of reviews leading to investigations, leading to different types of remedies have taken years, in some cases, decades to go through. Um, there's no sort of one-size-fits-all solution. They will have to go in, look at particular companies, look at particular um, examples of uh, anti-competitive behavior, and come up with very specific remedies for those. So this is going to take a long time. Clearly, the only criteria they will use isn't whether is this good for consumers or not, because Standard Oil was extremely efficient. It lowered the price of, of oil, increased distribution. It was doing lots of good things but is also engaged in quite a few types of behavior that were clearly anti-competitive. And breaking it up uh, led to a wave of innovation. It also led to massive returns for shareholders. Many people think that antitrust actions will necessarily be negative for shareholders, uh, particularly when they're referring to divestitures. I don't think that's likely to be the case at all. Um, the big case is historically Standard Oil, AT&T, Microsoft, IBM in many cases resulted in waves of innovation afterwards and, and shareholders uh, doing quite well in these cases. In the current example, um, the review has just started. And, and I think it's important that they recognize that there are a lot of concerns. This is a bipartisan issue, concerns about the, the concentrated power, the lack of consumer choice for some of these digital companies. If we don't get um, some type of antitrust behavior, we might get regulation. And it's very clear from the regulatory actions taken by European authorities, the regulations have impeded innovations, haven't really helped consumers, and have really hurt the tech sector development in Europe. So regulation is probably not, not the right way to go. This is very complex. The current legislation is probably appropriate for dealing with digital firms. The DOJ's antitrust division does have a lot of experts in digital firms, platform firms. So I think they will come up with the right decision, but it's not something that's going to be, happen quickly. Right. I think uh, you've made the point uh, elsewhere that uh, the case against Microsoft, for example, uh, which was the bundling of, of Internet Explorer with, with uh, Windows 20 years ago, that forced them to stop doing that. Uh, that's what enabled companies like Google, yeah. uh, Yahoo, et cetera, to come along and actually you know, give them space to exist. And that, so that, that innovation aspect of this, I think, is very important, that it's not just about pricing, it's about, it's about stifling innovation. Yes. Yeah. Um, so certainly people talk about that with both Standard Oil and um, the Microsoft case. It's similar with AT&T, they started in the 70s but ended in the early 80s. And after the, the changes to AT&T, we did have the internet revelation really start. So there was a wave of innovation associated with that. So there's a host of examples in which big dominant companies, even good companies that were well run, were good for consumers, had low prices, um, but were viewed as being stifling innovation and anti-competitive. These measures ended up being very good for markets, very good for consumers, very good for innovation. Okay, thanks, Kevin. Uh, once again, the title of the white paper is Blitz Scale and Hope, 
Unicorns, IPOs, and the Fear of Repeating the Late 1990s, uh, co-written by Kevin and also by Bill Priest, our CEO and co-CIO. You can find this and all our other white papers and previous episodes of, of this podcast on our website. Kevin, I hope you'll join us again uh, sometime in the future. Thank you very much, Steve. And that's it for today. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. We'll talk to you again soon. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.